we're studying this quarter. Uh, in fact, all year we've been studying certain aspects about God, but this time for this quarter we want to actually study God himself as a being. What does it mean when we say the word God, and particularly Father and Son and Holy Spirit, these different persons? What does it all entail? And we're going to roll up our sleeves and do a pretty in-depth study of that this quarter. And today, our message is entitled, Come Let Us, and if you notice in parentheses, the Trinity, part one. Uh, and I was preparing these originally, I had two parts to the Trinity series. I believe we're going to expand that to three, but I figured someone would question only two parts to a Trinity series? Come on, you got after three sermons. So uh, we're going to have three messages on the Trinity and then move on from that to each individual member of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and breaking down what Scripture does or doesn't say about these uh, three persons of the Godhead. Now, why are we discussing this? I'm, I'm going to have an extended introduction today to this message and this series uh, to set the platform for the next several messages. I would prefer not to be rushed, and if I try to cram it into one or two sermons, um, I'm going to be frustrated, and you're going to be sitting there too long, and you're going to, things are going to get said too fast, and I'll get emails, so we don't want any of those things happening. <clears throat> but in the Seventh Avenue Christian Church as a whole, but even in the Seventh Avenue Church in particular, there has been recent agitation on the question of the nature of God, uh, particularly about the Trinity or things like the personhood of the Holy Spirit or the the, the divinity or humanity of Christ or the personality of God the Father. All these different questions are kind of humming around and. Uh, there's a somewhat significant portion of people inside even the Seventh Adventist Church who are sincerely questioning the concept of the Trinity. Is this a biblical construct, or is it just a tradition of men? Or yet worse, is it even a part of the wine of Babylon that we're drinking into the pure remnant faith? What are we doing here? Uh, the word, for instance, you'll hear things like, well, you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. That's right, it's not in the Bible. Adventist pioneers, argument number two were overwhelmingly anti-Trinitarian, which is true. They were. Already people are like, what? Huh? <laughs> Some would, as I said, even see it as evidence of a move back to Babylon, Catholicism, polluting the purity of the remnant faith. What's going on here? So let's discuss it. Let's discuss it. As we begin to discuss this issue, as with every other issue, we need to recognize the limitations of language. Again, all of this is preliminary, setting a foundation, an introduction to our message today. There's a difficulty, and sometimes even a danger in language, in that it's limited. Same word can mean different things to different people. Uh, the classic example I like to use is, you know, a child with snack. To them, they're thinking cookie. To me, I'm thinking apple. And we're both excited, but for different reasons, over the same word. And the same way, the Trinity, the term Trinity, can mean different things to different people. To some, it conjures up one image, to another, the other image, but you're using the same language and you're getting frustrated. Though you're using the same word, you're saying different meanings. So we want to break that apart as much as possible. We have to respect and understand that there's only so much that language can do for us. We're limited in the fact that uh, we have these words. And we go back to that idea, well, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And that is true. However, neither are the terms millennium, incarnation, heterosexual monogamy, or investigative judgment. Yet we have no problem affirming those biblical doctrines because those teachings, even if those specific terms are not employed, the teachings themselves are clearly set forth through the, through the whole of the Bible. And that's an important key. 
everything we know about the nature of God, the person of God, his, his being, comes to us from what God himself has revealed in his word. And I want to emphasize the importance of this. When we talk about any issue, any issue at all, but particularly one that might be debatable or, or just dialogue might erupt, <laughs> it's a nice way of saying something, um, when something could be a touchy issue, we need to be sure to use all of Scripture and no more than Scripture. Okay? All of Scripture and no more than Scripture. Uh, we need to go with what God has revealed. That's why we had Brother Emilander come and, and present a message on the importance of Scripture. Because that is our framework for every uh, position of doctrine or practice in our lives. must be, what does the Word of God say? And, and we need to understand how we know what we know. Everything as Christians that we know about God is revealed by God to us in His Word. Thus, and here's your $100 word for the day, what we're talking about is epistemology. Okay? Already some of you are like, all right, these are big words, I'm done. But we'll break it down, okay? No problem. Epistemology is simply the study of how you know the stuff you know. Let me give you an example. There are certain things that I've been trying to teach my son that he yet does not know. But I know they're in there. He just won't get it out right. You know, one, two, three, four, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Just skips right past five, six, seven. But I know they're in there. When I count out to five, like, oh, yeah, he can say it back. But he's not coming out right. However, there are other things that he, though, though I've sat there and tried to teach him. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, boom, nothing there. On the other hand, there are certain things that he knows. I have no idea how he came up with it. The other day we were riding in a vehicle, and he looks out the side and he sees the shadow of the vehicle against the, 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 you know, the road or the, the, the landscape beside us, and it was moving right along, and he says, look, the shadow of our car is moving with us. And I'm like, you don't even know five? You know, <laughs> how do you do it? And I've never sat down and taught him with concepts of light and shadow and how he obstructs something and an eclipse is beyond, but somehow he just inherited some, picked it up. I don't know how he picked up the language, or the, somehow... And the question is, how do you know? And the same thing in religious life. How do we know the things that we think we know? Too many Christians know stuff that they don't particularly know from here. They might, oh, everybody knows that. It's just common sense. Or I grew up thinking that. Or I believe this. For instance, the idea of an eternal burning hell. It's just common knowledge to most Christians. But how do you know that? How do you know it's true or not? How do you know right from wrong? They have to have a filter. And this is why the Bible instructs us to test how many things, all things, and hold fast to that which is good. The filter for all knowledge, especially the knowledge of God, is in his own word. So we have to understand what the word says and don't go beyond it and don't limit it uh, less than that. Let me explain what I mean. As Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists, or we should at least as by believing Seventh-day Adventists, arrive at truth by affirming what the Scripture actually says, not by merely rejecting what other churches happen to teach. Okay? For instance, if there's a doctrine that is held by some other church, we don't say, hey, we're going to be different from them, so we're just not going to believe that. For instance, take the Roman Catholic Church. People will say, well, I'm against the Trinity because that's a Catholic doctrine. Okay. But Catholics, for instance, believe in the existence of God. Do we therefore say, there's no God? 
Because they teach it, we have to be against it, and our goal is to be different. No, no, no. Friends, our goal as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, is not to be different. Our goal is to be faithful to the Word. So whatever the Word says, we want to go there, and anything that goes beyond the Word, we want to stop there. No, 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 you're off on your own there. If fidelity to the Word of God sets us apart and makes us unique, well, so be it. But we're not aiming for weird. We're aiming for faithful. Does that make sense? Okay. So there are some things in the Christian world that overlap to other places, but there are some significantly different things that Seventh-day Adventists hold. I've mentioned, for instance, the, uh, the reference to hell or the, the connected to the state of the dead, the sanctuary, the second coming. There's all kinds of spirit of prophecy, all kinds of particulars that we hold that we believe are solidly biblical and other denominations may not hold at all, but that's okay. But our goal should not be because everything out there is them. We have to come up with something, whatever the opposite of that is. No, 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 no. Our goal is to say, whatever this says, we go with it, period. That's our goal. So when it comes to a belief in the nature of God or, the, or who God is or is there even a God, there is a spectrum of belief that I want to walk you through. And again, this is all introduction to our Bible study day. It's not going to go monumentally long. That's why there's multiple parts. But the majority of this is going to be setting the stage for our study. Okay? There is a spectrum of belief about God in the world. I'm not just talking about in the Seventh-day Adventist world, or even the Christian world. In the world as a whole, there are only so many things you can believe about God. Okay? You can go from one extreme that says there is no God whatsoever, and that is known as atheism. Atheism, a complete rejection of the idea of God. And it's not like, well, I think there could be, but I'm not really sure. I'm not, I kind of, no, 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 no. Atheism declares, I know inherently, I'm certain of the fact there is no God, period. Okay. Now, the first cousin of atheism is agnosticism. Getting closer to the idea of a God, but basically says, okay, there might be a remote possibility of a God, but it's so far beyond my comprehension, I can't know it, therefore I don't know it, therefore I, practic- I live basically like an atheist, but if there was any scientific evidence, if there was some way, I'd be okay with it, but I don't know, I can't know, so we just move forward, okay? One says, I know definitively they're not. The other one says, I don't know either way, but I am going to lean towards not, okay? Atheism, then agnosticism. I'm not sure, therefore probably not. Then the next step towards God, understanding of God, is a belief in a monotheism, which mono means one, one God, monotheism. And Christians find themselves in this camp. However, inside of monotheism, there are distinctions that need to be articulated. Monotheism, belief in one God, there is within that a a rigid singularity belief that God is one being, one person, one, one, one in the absolute sense, in the same way that there's only one pulpit here, there's one pastor, there's one. It cannot be three persons, it's not three different, it's just one. A rigid singularity. Now, next door to that, as we're moving down the spectrum, is a thing called modalism. Okay, modalism, which simply means the same idea that there's a rigid singularity of a God, one being, one essence, one, 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 one. But at different times, that one being will take the form of some other thing. For instance, like the form of God the Father, but sometimes will show up as God the Son, and other times be God the Holy Spirit. 
So say, oh, yes, we believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in that there's one God who each acts that different role. But you can't be two at once. That would be crazy talk, right? So it's the one rigid singularity simply playing the role of a father, the role of a son, or the role or mode of father, son, and Holy Spirit, modalism. Right? Stay with me. This is good. Okay? Then you have what I believe to be the correct view. I'm just going to go out and say what I believe right up front. I wish, by the way, more people would just say what they believe. But that there is one God in three persons. Okay? One God constituted by three individual persons. One God, three persons. So you have three individual distinct persons, each with a different form, each with a different function, each with a different role, but together they constitute one single God. Okay? This is all these different ideas from a rigid singularity to modalism to what is commonly called triune or even more commonly Trinitarianism is all under monotheism. That there's one God and there's different ways of understanding that one God. But then you move beyond that. And people will say, no, no, no. I'm Trinitarianism in the fact that I believe that there are three different gods. Okay? Which now you've moved outside of monotheism, which is one God. You've moved into polytheism, where there's more than one God. There's multiple gods. And is that what the Bible teaches? Is there a God of this and a God of that and a God of that? Three different gods. It's a pantheon of gods, just a very small one. You know, this God, and then this God, and then this God. Is this what the Scripture teaches? Or is there one God with three specific persons? Okay? Now, of course, polytheism isn't limited to just one, two, or three gods. There are religions on the face of the world that believe in literally hundreds, thousands, even millions of gods. An entire pantheon of the God for this and a God for that, a God of the leaves, a God for the tree trunks, a God of the rain, a God for the fertility, a God for the summer, a God for the season, a God for the... God, 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 God. And they just, every little thing has its own... God. So you enhance this encyclopedic warehouse full of gods. Now, if you move beyond that, you'll get to the point that there's so many little gods that every little thing, basically you move beyond the idea that there's individual gods, you get the idea that God itself is a pervasive presence. It doesn't even have a personality. It's it, not a he. And God is a pervasive presence that inhabits all things. That God is in here. And that God is in here and here, and he's in you, and he's also in me. Just as much as God is in the pulpit, God is in the preacher. God is in the individual. God is in everything, everyone. God is in, that's named panentheism. And the final step over here is even abandoning the idea that God is in everything, just the idea that God is everything. That this microphone is God. That this handrail is God. And to the same degree, I am God. Okay? So you've moved from a spectrum of there is no God to everything is God. And right along the spectrum, there's this, and there's different thoughts. There are people that hold each of these different beliefs in the whole world. So what does the Bible actually teach? By the way, an interesting thing I think about this spectrum of belief is that if you really plot it out, it would actually be more like a circle. Because you look, you tie the two ends together. You put atheism right next to pantheism, some striking similarities. Okay? 
Basically, the ultimate highest authority in each one is me. One says, there is no God, so I'm my only authority. The other one says, everything is God, and therefore I'm just as much God as everything. I'm the highest authority. It's interesting. And by the way, this is the same thing in this belief as in all others. Satan doesn't mind which ditch you fall into. As long as you're not in biblical truth, you're good with him. Okay? So what we want to do is land squarely, put our faith firmly in whatever the Scripture says, not more and not less. Now, I bring up that more and not less thing. Again, all still introduction. I understand. We haven't had opening prayer. I'm aware. There was a time in Seventh-day Adventist history, and I'm going to come back to this in our third message more, but there was a bit of a crisis of theology around the turn of the century, which, of course, now we have to say the previous turn of the century, the 1900s instead of the 2000s. But uh, one of our, our leading men right here in the great state of Michigan was kind of agitating some issues, some speculative, scientific-sounding ways of approaching and looking and viewing God, and did something that I think some of us do from time to time, which might be surprising that Mrs. White has such a strong condemnation of it. Now, and I've been guilty of this before too, but you'll sometimes say, I'm going to help us explain God. I know the Bible says stuff, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I think we need help beyond the Bible. Let's come up with an analogy. God is like, and then we'll fill in the blanks, and we'll make up something. You've heard probably God is like a clover or a shamrock, you know, three individual leaves but one leaf. God is like uh, an egg where you have the shell and the white and the yolk. Each has its own part, but it constitutes a whole. You'll hear things like God is like the water. Uh, there's the vapor, the gas form, there, there's the liquid, and there's the solid, all the same substance but in different forms. And so, oh, that's so handy. It helps me understand. Let me, let me tell you something. There's a reason that God had that commandment about don't make graven images. And it goes, and it's not just for, oh, those, you know, archaic people used to worship cows and things like that. We would never do something like that. Yet we'll say God is like an egg. (laughs) Facing these particular things, Mrs. White wrote, you can find this in Evangelism, page 416, by the way. I am instructed to say, which I think you should take the spirit of prophecy seriously all the time, but especially when it says, I am instructed to say. Whatever comes after that is an instruction from the Lord, okay? I am instructed to say, those sentiment, the sentiments of those who are searching for advanced scientific ideas are not to be trusted. And again, this is in the turn of the century with them, some of our medical professionals are trying to look at a way to integrate health and wellness, and they started diving into more spiritualistic interpretations of Scripture. Spiritualism. Okay? Those senti- uh, the sentiments of those who are searching for advanced scientific ideas are not to be trusted. Such representations as the following are made. And then she quotes, The Father is as light invisible. The Son is as the light embodied. The Spirit is as the light shed abroad. God is like light. Or she'll go on to say, uh, or another one. The Father is like the dew, invisible vapor. The Son is like the dew gathered in beauteous form. The Spirit is like the dew fallen to the seed of life. Sounds nice, right? It's poetic. Or this one. Another representation. The Father is like the invisible vapor. The Son is like the leaden cloud. The Spirit is rain, fallen and working in refreshing power. We probably said that, mm, that sounds good. Listen to the very next sentence. All these spiritualistic inter- representations are simply nothingness. It's a whole lot of hot air. It's not a real thing. It's nothingness. She explains why. They are imperfect, untrue. They weaken and diminish 
the majesty which no earthly likeness can be compared to. And here's the principle. God cannot be compared with the things his hands have made. You realize that we are things his hands have made. And our minds are finite where his is infinite. The Bible plainly declares, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. They're better, they're broader, they're deeper, they're... they're, they're he's, I know this is tough, but God is smarter than us. You know? His brain is bigger. His concepts are broader. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's everlasting. And we have the idea, it's like, no, 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 we're going to help you explain it. God is like an... God is like, I am not an egg. <laughs> I am not water. I am not light. I am the creator of the light. I'm the creator of the egg. I'm the creator of the water. You, I'm the creator of the golden cap. You cannot compare me that way. Because, you see, folks, there is a limit to our understanding. It's just like language is limited because there's only so many letters. There's only so many combinations, and God is much broader than that. So we must control ourselves from going beyond what the text says into speculation which might sound good to us, but there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. He's like, our safety is always found in Scripture alone. Does that make sense? Now, on the flip side of that, don't be so afraid to ask questions of God that you limit from what even the Scripture says. For instance, you could say something like, well, I just don't understand how a spirit can be a person, and therefore it can't be real. Please. Just because you don't understand something doesn't mean that it's not possibly true. If that were the case, I would not believe in microwave ovens or cell phones. I don't get it. I don't know how 30 seconds can make a potato hot and yet not cook me. I don't know. Somebody does, and I'm glad the Lord gave us brains to use, but I don't, just because I don't understand it. And the same thing is true about, I have no idea how God, how some of the statements in Scripture are true. I just trust that they are. I don't know how God can be one, one God in three persons. For that matter, I don't know how, because by the way, the people will reject that. That's crazy. But then they'll accept the things like the incarnation, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. How do you do that? I don't know that one either. But I take it as true because God's Word says so. Okay? So I don't want to limit myself from not exploring God's Word, nor do I want to get so fanciful that I just go right past the bounds of God's Word and spring out into crazy, okay? which is a very technical term, springing out into crazy. So what I want us to do is be anchored solidly in whatever the Word says, nothing more and nothing less. Let's see what the Word of God actually says about the Word of God's author. What does God say about himself in his Word? With that, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity of studying you from your own word. Lord, guide our minds as we study the deep things of God. And Lord, help us to be okay with the things we don't understand, but trust your word implicitly. Give us what we need to know, nothing more, nothing less. And what we discover, let us be faithful even unto death, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the Bible actually say about the concept of the Trinity? Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Anytime you do a topical study, almost without exception, the very best place to start is in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It sets up the ideal, the original, the, the, the pattern, the blueprint. And then from there, we see how things go on. 
In Genesis chapter 1, we see how God introduces himself, which is a very nice thing to have included in Scripture. Aren't you so glad that the God we serve chooses to communicate? You know, he could be silent, he could be distant, he could be shrouded and never even know, but he says, hi, I'm God. Here's my book. He wrote a book, and he tells us about himself. Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. Then God said, let, what's the next word? Us. Now, we're going to lay out a principle here. What we're going to see is the, what the Old Testament strongly suggests or mightily alludes to, the New Testament makes much, much more explicitly clear. And then you add that magnifying glass, that laser beam of the spirit of prophecy, and it becomes inescapable. Okay? So this is, we're going to look for the broad principles which are articulated in the Old Testament. It gets clearer and clearer in the New Testament. And by the time you get to the spirit of prophecy, it's, it's right on target. Does this make sense? So we're going to start from the Old Testament, the very first things that God says about himself, and then move forward. Verse 26 again. Then God said, let us. Now whatever he has said after that, we'll get to in a moment. But who is God talking to? Himself. Right? Then God said, let us. Now, in our minds, I'm sure that we have this picture. Whenever, whenever you see the word God, you think of that rigid singularity. There's an individual being. But apparently, God said, let us. And then whatever it is, they will do. Let us, and what is the thing that they're going to do? Make man, right? Let us make man, how? In our image. I want to emphasize the plural pronouns. Us, our. There's the plural, the plural possessive. According to our likeness. Then it says, let, what's the next word? Them. So notice there's a plural, and he wants to make something in his own image, and so the only thing that can represent accurately an us and an our is a they and a them. Right? Right? They, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. So notice there's God with his image, a singular reference to God. Then God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So singular God creates singular man. But then it says, comma, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So let me ask you a question. Is humanity singular or is it plural? (laughs) I've heard both. This is really, now now you're like, now I need to find out who I am, much less who God is, you know. It's interesting. Him and them used interchangeably in the same way that he and they, or us and our, are used with a singular God. Now, that's fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. Now, in fact, if you go over to Genesis chapter 3, which, of course, is the story of the fall into sin, the disobedience of humanity, which both participated in, we go here in verse 22, and look at the Lord now speaks again, reflecting on the creatures he made originally in his image. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Notice this construction. One of us. It strongly suggests plurality within God. Do you see what I'm saying? 
that there's us, but apparently there's one of us, as if there's one and another one and another one, us, a group, but still one God. By the way, why did the translators decide to use these plural pronouns when referencing the word God? If God is the noun, the pronoun, pronoun used to represent that was us and our. Why did they use plural and plural possessive when, refer, when talking about that term God? Well, because the term, though our, our word in English is God. You know, it, it's fascinating. Um, all the words in the Bible, there's different words in the Bible for God. In English, it's just God. But in Hebrew, there were different words for God. The word here used is Elohim, okay? which is a fascinating word because Elohim is a plural. It's like waters. You got to Lake Michigan, how many waters are there? Oh, it's one body of water. Are you sure? How many drops? Oh, my word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Here you have this idea, Elohim, God, is a unity. It's a singular unity, but unity implies that there's some differentiation. Okay? That word implies it. So you have to, and yet you're faced with the Hebrew word Elohim, you're required grammatically or syntactically, we'll just say grammatically for now, to use the appropriate pronoun to reflect that noun. The noun itself is plural, so you must use an us and an our when talking about God. That's why the translators use that. Elohim means unity. Now, go back one page. Go to Genesis chapter 2. And if this is starting to scramble the brain just a little bit, I think the Lord intended us to be thinking about that. In fact, I believe he gave us a template to help us understand that. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Is there anything else in the first three chapters of Genesis that's like God? Well, we already gave away that one. God created something in his image. Man, humanity. Chapter 2, verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I know that this, we've poetically kind of made that into a thing. Oh, he got down on one knee and he expressed this love poetry to her. Notice he wasn't speaking to her. I would get in big trouble if I looked at my wife and recalled her as this. You know, that's not how you speak to people. He doesn't address her as you or some other nice thing. He says this. He's evaluating, what is this? And he's speaking to God. And he says, this is now bone of my bones. It's an extension of me. Flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And the reason why? For she was taken out of man. You've heard the corny line, you complete me. Literally. That's my other, that's that's an extension of me. That's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That fits compared to all the other creatures that the Lord God had been parading before him all day. You know, she's not a rhinoceros. Praise the Lord. I thought I was going to be stuck with a giraffe or something or a dolphin. No, that compliments me. Okay? Now notice what the Lord does with that, verse 24. Therefore, because of that extension, that complementary, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become, what's it say? One flesh. They is a plural, becoming one So you can have, God gave us a picture of how the Godhead works when he made Adam and Eve. 
Or at this point, they're just the man and the woman, Adam and the woman, his wife. But man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So uh, invariably, when people have trouble with this, it's like, you think about marriage. When a man and a woman are joined together, they make one flesh. By the way, does that lose the personhood of either one? No. Are you still an individual? Absolutely. But you now have a unity supposed to be of purpose, of mind, even a body with the one flesh where you physically come together. Well, you're not supposed to do that outside of that, right? It's reserved for this bond, which is a reflection of the image of God. Become one flesh. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 11 as we're just looking at these biblical frameworks. Again, we're looking at the Old Testament. Nowhere do you explicitly say, and God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the... You don't see that in the Old Testament, but you have very, very strong allusions to, very clear references to. I think it strongly infers this plurality that what we're going to find next week is going to be more explicit in the New Testament. Go to Genesis chapter 11. Now, some of you might have been right on point listening to the Scripture reading, thinking, all right, the sermon says the trinity, and they're talking about the Tower of Babel. What in the world are you doing here? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Wouldn't that be nice if the whole earth had just one language and one speech? Oh, that'd be handy. We don't have that now. By the way, what we're about to see here in Genesis chapter 11 is the very first giving of the gift of tongues. Literally the exact same gift as Pentecost, just in reverse. They all spoke one language and he broke them apart. Pentecost, they all spoke different languages, he brought them back together in one. Same God, same power. But here, the, by the way, and it reminds me of, uh, you've probably heard it said, uh, that someone who is trilingual speaks three languages, someone who's bilingual speaks two languages, and someone who speaks only one language is an American. <laughs> right, you know? And people will say, well, the language of heaven will be, it was Spanish, or the language of heaven will be this. And, and I've, I've had, there's, a, there's a Spanish-speaking pastor who, who actually made this statement. He said, no, no, my friends, listen. The language of heaven will be English. The people, the Spanish people, oh. he say, Americans can't learn another language. That's, we, have, we have to break it down to where they are. We have to meet them where they are. Anyway, I digress. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in, in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And, of course, if you recall, this is the context. They've come out of the boat. Of course, they've been living for a while. And the Lord has given them a specific command, just like he did to Adam and Eve, to spread yourselves over the whole world, be fruitful, and multiply. And here they want to stay congregated together and not spread abroad. They want to be in defiance of God. So it goes on, verse 3. They said to one another, and here's the key, come let what? Us. They had one language, one speech, and they said, come let us. Now they're going to do something, right? Come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So you notice there's a plurality. The people are all different, but they're working in unison. And they say, come, let us do Now, what's fascinating is the Lord's response to this rebellion. Verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are what? One. He looks at all this multitude of people and he says, That is one. Now, what does he mean by that? Have they glommed into some massive one big blot of flesh that's one? No. 
He means that they're united in language, they're united in purpose, they're united in mission, they're united together as one man. Another reference you can come up with is a little side allusion, but you'll find it in Nehemiah chapter 8, if I'm not mistaken, is that when they recovered the words of the law, they, they said, the Bible says they gathered together in front of the water gate as one man. They were all in unity together. And here the Lord looks down from heaven and says, Behold, the people are one. And he goes on. And they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. And think about the people at this time. They're living massive long lives. They have great big brains. They have all this ability and resources availability. And they're going to bend all of that created power into opposition of God and his laws. And God says, we have to curb this. This is going to go downhill faster than it did the first time. So what does he do? Verse 7, come, let us go down. And there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. It's powerful. Come, let us. Come, let us. And God's like, how about this? Come, let us go to work on them. In the same way that, by the way, this will be an interesting point, but the Hebrew word for one there where the Lord says, behold, the people are one, is ikad. E-C-H-A-D, ikad. I don't really speak that all, so I'm just going to, you know, mess it up, but that's the word that's used there. That means a unity of plurality. Okay? United as one. Chapter 18 of Genesis, as we move on. This little combination of chapters, I'm going to try to go through it as quickly as I can, but thoroughly at the same time. So I'm going to try to both speak quickly and slowly. So pray for me. Genesis chapter 18, um, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 18, verse 1. We see an encounter with Abraham, who is now Abraham because he got that new name in chapter 17, but he still has not had a child yet, at least the child of promise, through Sarah, his wife, who is now Sarah instead of Sarai. But it says here, verse 1, Then the Lord appeared to him by the tebereth trees at Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And already you're like, aha, there's the Trinity. The Lord comes in three people. Case closed. Slow down. This is why it'd be so handy. Like, oh, look, there's a text, and let's just go run right past the text. All the text says that the Lord came to visit him, and three men showed up. Let's see what it means. Let the text explain itself, okay? Again, verse 2. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass, uh, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And you probably know the rest of the story. We have to go on. But he, he hosts these three visitors at his tent and gives them provisions, gives them rest. And of course, this is where they have the encounter when Sarah's promised that this time next year, and she laughs, and it's the whole thing. But let's go down to verse 16. As that interview concludes, and they're getting ready to leave, the story gets more back to what we're talking about today, verse 16. Then the men, and again, how many were there? Three, rose from there and looked towards where? Sodom. Of course, what happens in chapter 19? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. These three gentlemen, these three visitors, as the Bible calls them men, as you're about to hear them referred to as angels, you also see the Lord. So just these three persons 
are coming down, and apparently they're en route to Sodom, and they happen, quote-unquote, to pass by Abraham's tent. Oh, come by, they visit with you. Okay. But then they, oh, thank you so much for the, for the cheese and bread and water, whatever you had. Now we're going to be back about our mission. It's time to go. And they turn their eyes towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. So he accompanies them. You know, the Abra- you recall that Abraham and Lot had a conversation about where to live. And Abraham graciously deferred to Lot and said, you can choose. And where did Lot choose? Did he choose up in the hills or down in the valley? Down in the valley. Down towards, and it's interesting if you watch this, in the time of Lot, the first reference it says he pitched his tents near Sodom. Next reference, he's in Sodom. As soon as you make up your mind to head that way, you're going to keep going that way. Just a life lesson there for you. But Abram's up on the hill. So you get the picture. He walks out of the tree. Well, let me at least walk you down to the path, down to the road. You know, so let me walk you to the edge of the hill, and you can look towards Sodom. And they're having this walk and talk. And verse 17, watch this now. And the Lord said. All of a sudden, the Lord's in the picture. Now, the Lord was already in chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord appeared, but then it says three men came. Just keep fleshing it out. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? It's an interesting question. We serve a God who likes to think about things before he does them. By the way, he also likes to investigate problems before he executes justice. This concept of an investigative judgment is biblical from start to finish. Going on. But he wrestles. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? What's he about to do? more pertinent to Abraham, what's he about to do? Destroy Lot. And the rest of his existence. Lot has more kids than Abraham does. Lot's household's technically bigger than his, right? And the Lord says, shall I hide from him what I'm doing? And he goes on. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So basically the Lord, just like we saw in Genesis chapter 1, has a conversation with himself. Should I let him in on it or not? Should I tell him why we're going to Sodom? And he decides he will. In verse 20, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it has come to me, and if not, I will know. Okay? I, I've heard the prayers. I've, I've heard the, you know, and you can almost imagine angels, you know, fly back and forth from heaven. It's like, oh, Lord, we've got a problem in Sodom. I'll come down personally. This is the same God that early in Genesis, when there was rebellion, came down in the cool of the day to find out what had happened. He always investigates. But he goes on. Verse 22 is where we start to get a little bit more interesting for our purposes today. Then the men, how many men were there? Three, turned away from there and went to Sodom, but Abraham still stood before whom? The Lord. So you get the picture. Three men come into the picture. The Lord is there. The men, plural, go away, but the Lord stays with Abraham, implying that one of those men is the Lord. Well, who are the other two? And we want to say, ah, that's the God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Slow down. What does Scripture say? And of course, you know, the rest of chapter 18 is the bargaining that Abraham does with the Lord. Well, what if there's 50? What if there's 45, 40, 30? Can I, get you? Can I hear it? 
gets all down to his ten. He feels safe because he's like, well, I got Lot, I got his wife, and they got three kids, and they got husbands. Uh, we're, we're good. Now he's starting to do the math, I imagine. But now verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant house and spend the night and wash your feet, and you may rise early and go on your way. And of course, you know the rest of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had a very difficult evening there. And it's interesting as you watch, there is an urgency with these two angels that you have to get out, and you have to get out now. You cannot dally, you cannot wait, you cannot put off and delay. You have to go now. Why is that the case? Think about it. What is the mission of the Lord? To destroy Sodom, right? To investigate to see if it's true. By the way, did those two angels find out whether the outcries were true or not? They're like, uh, uh, the report is not good. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a bad report. It's, 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 you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Okay? You guys have to get out. Because the two of them are there, but the Lord had stayed back with Abram still planted firmly on terra firma, right? But now he's coming towards to catch up, and they're like, guys, we have to go. There's, there's a sense of urgency. It's not another day. It's not another hour. You've got to get out now. By the way, one of the saddest parts of Scripture is found right there in Genesis 19. When Lot's children would not listen to him, and the Bible tells us why, because they thought he was joking. I'll just make this tiny side illusion. We need strong leaders in our homes who can command their children to say, look, the Lord has said this. We've got to go. And instead of, oh, you're just playing around. Good one. High five. Got your dad. All right, see you later. It's like, no, I'm serious. We've got to, oh, whatever. Oh, good. We'll be here. They wouldn't go. And of course, you know, the angels are now panicked. You've got to go. You've got to go. And they're basically dragging them out of the city. We're trying to save you. Which another illustration. If they were so willing to save Lot and his wife, even though his wife was going to turn away, and they're just trying to drag them out, how much more should we be seeking the lost? The angels are dragging them out. And we go on. Watch what happens here. Go to verse 23. So much we skipped over there, but we've got to go to verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. So he goes out as daybreak. They spend all night in the struggle, and they get out to the next town over there. The sun starts to come up. Now watch verse 24. We set all this up for this verse. Then the Lord. Now when was the last time the Bible there referred to the Lord? Where was he? With Abraham, right? And the two had gone ahead. But they were all headed towards Sodom, were they not? Right? So now the two have gone ahead. They had the debate. While they're debating this, they're trying to get them out of town. And the Lord is approaching. And then it says in verse 24, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Did you catch that? The Lord, who we've already established from the context, is there on firm ground, was there with Abraham, walking to Sodom. He shows up. The Lord, oh, I've heard the report. And he causes fire to come down. But where does it come from? From the Lord in heaven. How many lords are there in verse 24? Is it possible that there's more than one person 
yet still be the same Lord? That one can be on earth having activities while the other is in heaven, having corresponding, each having a different function, but working completely in ichad unity? It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to wind this down. I know we're getting closer. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The point that we just inferred there, is it possible, is said explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Perhaps the most well-known passage in the Torah, the, the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish uh, the Israelites keep up with, they, they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And people will look at that and say, How can you possibly defend the doctrine of the Trinity when the Bible explicitly says the Lord is one? Well, the resolution is this. There are different Hebrew words for the word one. You could have one, like one person, one pencil, one object. That's the only one. That's it. Rigid, not two, not three, not five, not six, not just one. There is a word for that. Yaid, I believe, is the right word for that. But that's not the word. By the way, Moses had access to both of these words. But he chose to use a different word. For the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He uses echad. The Lord is one in the same exact sense that the Lord had said the people are one. They're one in purpose, one in motive, one in behavior, one in in thought, one in character, one in all those different ways. Now, the same Bible from the same author says the Lord is one. In the same sense, not one in the sense that there's only one, a rigid singularity, but one in the sense of unity of purpose, unity of character, unity of, 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 of these different attributes. But they can still, in fact, it implies a plurality of individuals coming together as one God. It's fascinating. Isaiah chapter 6, and that's the last book we're going to go to. Isaiah chapter 6, as we go through the Old Testament, building the framework for our understanding of the triune nature of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, this is an interesting thing. He's shown the temple in heaven. He's shown the throne of God, and he sees these seraphim with these different attributes, and they have this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, leave your finger in Isaiah 6 and go over now to Revelation chapter 4. Another prophet was shown the throne room of heaven, just like Isaiah was, And notice the striking similarity of what he sees. Though it's hundreds of years later, in a different language, in a different remote context, the same picture is shown. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's fascinating that both Isaiah and John are shown a picture of the heavenly court 
and they hear the same song, Holy, Holy. And it's fascinating. Now, this is a little implication, but we'll get to it. Why does the song have that phrasing to it? Holy, holy, holy. Why not just holy is God? Or most holy, or exalted, or holy. But it's specifically holy, and it's not holy, holy. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So there's the Lord is holy, oh, and he's holy, and he's also holy. Why? Well, there's an implication there, but let's keep reading down the text. Okay? Verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 6 again. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the whole house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? Notice the Lord refers again to himself as I and us. Who will go for us? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Who will go for us? And of course, that's a call to the prophet Isaiah there, but even amongst the members of the Godhead. When sin arose, there was a discussion, who shall go for us? And we know that one of those members of the Godhead came down to be with us. Isaiah chapter 9 beautifully foretells the coming of Jesus. In verse 6, probably a passage we're very familiar with, says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. This is a messianic prophecy pointing to Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Godhead, the Trinity. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. What's that next one? Mighty God. Think about this. The one who came down here is just as much mighty God as the one who sent him. Okay? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about the construction of that, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Children are born. Yes? That's how children get here. <laughs> They're born. But notice that it doesn't say a son is born. The son was merely given. The implication being he was the son of God already, and he was given as a gift. By the way, if you ever want to read about that, go to the Desire of Ages and read her comments about what it means to be given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten what? Son. The son existed. He was simply given, but a child was born. Do you see the difference? And this is getting into what we're going to be discussing when we get to the son of God. Who is he? What is he? But he's absolutely the Son of God, but he's a child of humanity. He was sent for us. And his name shall be given Mighty God and Everlasting Father. What I hope that we've done today is set the framework for the discussion. Okay? Built a foundation, a platform. 
then started looking at the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis onward. What does the Bible declare about the author of the Bible? What does he say about himself in his own book? And according to the very word of the Lord, I is an us. Man is in our image. There is a plurality. Though it is not specifically itemized as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's okay. It's strongly alluded to. It's clearly inferred. And when we get to the New Testament next week, it's going to be made explicitly clear. Okay? So what, was, what we see hints and, and strong suggestions of in the Old Testament, we use the New Testament, opens it up fully, and we see it more clearly. And by the time we get to the statements on the spirit of prophecy, it's game over. Okay? So I want to be sure that what we believe is actually what God's Word says, nothing more and nothing less. But I hope that we can establish that we can have faith in leaning on those, what do you call them? Those everlasting, Father, the everlasting arms. That God is eternal. God is greater than us. And He cares for us. It's not everlasting harm. It's everlasting arms. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.